0: Are there any questions and comments that are on your mind? Yes.
1: I have one that's about, it's actually about the uh, refuge to the Buddha. Yes. And um, it's a, a story and a question. Um, <clears throat> as I think I may have told you before, I have a friend who is um, a Zen been a Zen Buddhist practitioner for quite some time, and she has learned that she has a rare form of cancer which um, nothing can be done for. Uh, So (coughs) she um, has a probably a very limited time to to <clears throat> live, and she doesn't she doesn't want to leave this earth or her pets or her friends and family. Um, and she asked, told me that she doesn't find any refuge in the Buddha. The Buddha doesn't mean anything to her. God or anything like that,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um, I um, she felt confused about what's next and frightened. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I I did talk to her for some time, and I told her some things that I thought. would be helpful to her, and I, I would just like to get your take on it, too, because I'm going to be seeing her again. So, I, I think, um, <coughs> you know, we talk about I take refuge in the Buddha, and I think uh, when I first started in Buddhism, I thought, what the heck is that, you know? <laughs> the Buddha doesn't... <laughs> anyway, I'd like to hear your your
0: comments. Well, there's a lot <coughs> there to what you said. and <coughs> I find it especially interesting that your friend has studied and practiced Zen but coming to this stage of her life uh, she doesn't have she really needs to meet this stage in her life. So, what taking refuge in the Buddha means, what it means to me, is taking refuge not in the Buddha as a person who somehow exists in some way and is somehow going to help us and meet our needs that's a kind of idea that's really very Western and very Christian it's a European idea and um, I've never encountered anything to suggest that this was the sense in which the Refuges were originally developed and have mostly been used, although I have to qualify that because there are some forms of Buddhism that have developed which are very much like Christianity. Uh, There are forms of Buddhism called pure land that uh, the idea is that there is a Buddha in the pure land of a Buddha who, if they appeal to, uh, even by repeating the name of the Buddha, uh, of, of the particular Buddha, that through that Buddha's power, a person will be reborn in a pure land at the time of their death. And there in that pure land, they'll have the direct teachings of that Buddha to bring them to enlightenment. So... I mention this, just that there are many forms of Buddhism, some of which are very much like the Western uh, Christian ideas that is one of the ways that the refuge can be interpreted. But the way I've always understood it, and I think that the way it's meant to be interpreted, is that when we go for refuge to the Buddha, we're taking refuge in the, the fact of the Buddha and our knowledge of the fact that the Buddha was a human being, like we are. And the Buddha attained his own awakening and liberation through his own efforts and not as a gift of some supernatural being or supernatural force, or on the basis of some grace uh, bestowed by some other power. You know, and when when we when we go for refuge to some other being, like to a god or a deity, or like the other power of uh, of Buddha and a pure land. Uh, to me this is quite different than what we really mean by going refuge, for refuge to the Buddha because what we're doing is we're saying the Buddha, I, I am a human being like the Buddha was and therefore the enlightenment of the Buddha is a possibility for me as well. It's available to me. I too can achieve that same awakening. Uh, through my own efforts and not independence of some something outside of myself. Um, and I was taught to understand that the reason that we repeat these refuges three times is that first we're taking refuge in the Buddha of the past in just the way that I spoke of. but the second time we're taking refuge in the Buddha of the future who is us. us. That someday we too will be a Buddha. And that in fact that Buddha nature that will be manifest at the time of our awakening already exists in us. And so that the second time that we take refuge in the Buddha we're taking refuge in our own future Buddhahood as an established fact that because, we, uh, because we are taking the three refuges and because we're taking the precepts and because we are committing ourselves to the practice of the Dharma that we too will become awakened and then the third time we're taking refuge to, it's in the present, we're taking refuge in the, that Buddha nature that already exists in us and which is guiding us and directing us in the present and the idea, and even, even the idea that awakening and Buddhahood are something to be attained in the future is uh, is an illusion because uh, that's already imminent within it. So this is the way I understand the taking refuge in the Buddha. Now, <clears throat> we all we all are going to die and that's just that's absolute, inescapable fact. That's the way life is. And part of going for refuge to the Buddha is that the Buddha was also known as the conqueror of death. Not in the sense that the Buddha was immortal and is still walking the earth somewhere, you know, and just did an Elvis Presley on it. <laughs> but that the particular place that death occupies in our psyches as that which we fear, as the annihilation of our that is that is the sense in which death is conquered by the Buddha. Because <coughs> the Buddha discovered the truth that went beyond those appearances. And once he had gone beyond those appearances, then the appearance of death, just like all of these other appearances, was was understood and seen beyond. And so death was conquered. Now, your friend has the knowledge that Somebody else might not. Any, you know, someone my age might think, well, you know, I have, you know, probably a good twenty years, maybe thirty years, who knows. Somebody younger than me, it might seem like they've got a long, long time. You know, if you're forty years old, you might feel like, well, you know, I've got the whole other half of my life to become awakened in. But For someone like yourself, I mean you don't know how long you'll live, but pretty good chance it won't be twenty years. <laughs> I mean it would be wonderful if it was. I think I love having you around that's my selfish point of view, but but we're realistic, and your friend, because she has a diagnosis with cancer, knows it's much more it's it, it's it's coming up much more quickly so Because she failed to get what she needed to conquer death already. Does that mean that it's too late because she only has, who knows, a few weeks or a few months left? And I don't think so. I I certainly hope not. Because... Well, and one of the things that we're taught is that a person can achieve awakening at the time of their death, too. So even if they haven't already achieved it, but the other thing is that it can happen any time, and the essence of it is the letting go of the kind of attachments to the misperceptions and the misunderstandings that are causing the fear and confusion to be there. Your friend, that's what you said, your friend is experiencing a lot of fear and confusion. And I think that's, that's what happens to most people when they really confront death. It is the great unknown. There is the fear of the complete annihilation of the self and the not knowing of, of what it means and the confusion because a lot of the ideas that at one point they thought at one point seemed to give them comfort and allowed them to uh, think about the prospect of death without it creating too much disturbance for them. Uh, there, they don't work anymore. And so there's a lot of confusion. You said, your friend, the Buddha doesn't mean anything anymore. God doesn't mean anything. But the interesting thing is that she probably knows and understands both Buddha and God much better than she does death. Death is more more of a mystery than Those other two. To the extent that we succeed in the path that the Buddha taught, to that extent we come to the place of accepting uh, what is suchness. And What's really interesting about it is that it's not just a place of stoic sort of uh, resignation to, oh, well, that's the way it is, there's nothing I can do about it. But rather, the embracing it, as I said last night, it is actually perfect. But that means that involves a lot of letting go a lot of surrendering, a lot of completely changing the way that we've been looking at things up to now. And a person doesn't, I don't think they have to practice many, many years and undergo any kind of dramatic transformation. I think that perhaps the situation of directly facing one's death can do as much as as, as uh, years of meditation to uh, help the mind let go of, the, of its delusions. But first, there has to be a recognition of what's taking place. I mean, you 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 can't be if you're so totally lost in the delusion. I think you're pretty helpless, and it's very hard to find the way out. And that's what I sense is. The difficulty that your friend is having. That there's a sort of, she fears that she is the mind that both creates and experiences the fear. Because that mind is what seems to be at risk of death when the body dies. That that, that mind, I mean, she's probably already not that attached to her body. I mean, most of us overcome that pretty early on. And the only reason that we remain attached to our body is that it serves the needs of, of our mind, it uh, supports us, <laughs> right? But we identify who we are with the mind and the mental processes. And it's her mind, it's that very mind that that, uh, fears its own destruction. That's that, that mind that looks at the way things appear to be. And as a result of that draws the conclusion that Something terrible is about to happen and therefore generates the emotion of fear. And then that very mind itself is the experiencer of the fear. That's what I mean about the circularity of it. And so the only way to break that cycle is, is to somehow interrupt that that cycle of attachment and belief that leads to the fear, or the or the reaction to the fear, and the resistance to the fear when it's there, you know, if and the confusion and and other things. I think that your friend is perfectly right. There is not the pure land kind of Buddha who is going to somehow reach down and miraculously. Uh, prevent the inevitable from happening and it's a little bit late to try to generate the faith that that kind of pure land Buddha, that she is going to still be her own recognizable self who is reborn in some pure land and receives the teaching of some Buddha or that God is going to you know at the time she dies that she's going to find her herself in heaven, and there's going to be all of her friends and family that died before her with their arms open, saying, oh, it's so good you finally come to join us. It's a little bit late to start.
1: Well, she's too sophisticated for that. Yeah,
0: too sophisticated, and and, and it's too late for that.
1: I, I told her, uh, <clears throat> I reminded her that the only thing that never ends is now. Um, I thought of the idea that she was she's beginning a process, and it's a little bit like being pregnant. Yeah. When you're pregnant, (laughs) you you don't go back.
0: That's right. Say I'm
1: not pregnant anymore. It's a
0: process. And I I think
1: part of the thing was that she she just didn't even want to. uh, acknowledge that, you know, it was like a kind of a denial and she's a very smart mm-hmm. woman um, <clears throat> and she's she's a little younger than I am but not much but I, I think that she was just being very honest mm-hmm. and um, I really was appreciated that she would talk to me and I told her to call me in the middle of the night or whenever she wanted to because they're not too many people that you can um, talk about these things with if they're Mm. so, you know, attached to you and so fond of you, like your family and your friends and everything, they don't want to talk about it or they don't want to even think about it and they don't want to hurt you and and you don't want to hurt them, so...
0: Let's all pretend this isn't
1: happening. Yeah. So, anyway, I, I think, thank you for, for those things.
0: Well, I, I think the important thing is to help her to come to that place of just being yeah. in the present.
1: Yeah,
2: that's
0: what because I kept saying. Who knows how many months, days, minutes, hours that she has, but to lose, but to lose them or to to spend them in fear and anxiety and confusion would be really unfortunate. And that, as long you know, this is the thing about we all believe in death, but it's all secondhand. We've never experienced it, you know, so. all we ever experience is the present. And the present, the nature of the present, is that it it is our experience. And, and, you know, so to make the most of the present would probably be the most helpful thing that she could do or that that she could do for herself or for her family or for anybody else and that you could help her do. Because regardless of what may happen, you know, the The air is still just as sweet, right?
1: We all understand that (coughs) the now, Mm -hmm. but we just forget it constantly.
0: Well, that's right. We forget it constantly. So it
1: just (coughs) keeps needs keep to keep being reminded. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, she totally under understood that when I said that (coughs) about the only thing that doesn't end is now. But she had forgotten. You know, she had forgotten, but she she knew that perfectly. So I guess the thing is just keep saying,
0: how is it now? I really like your comparison with being pregnant, because, you know, it is a process. And it's not a process that started when she got this diagnosis. (coughs) It's a process that started when she was born. And, you know, 60 years ago, she didn't let the fact that she was going to die get in the way of her living her life. And that's what would be wonderful is if she could you know approach it the same way now but she could but now I think it's a wonderful opportunity for her to um, to let her spiritual training come to some kind of fruition you know if she can recognize that the whole problem is that She's not being in the present. She's, she's attaching to things that are no more than appearances. The self is an appearance. Death is an appearance. Death is empty. It's, uh, it's just an idea and the mind. And
1: I think the other thing is <clears throat> to have an idea, and I think that's one of the great things about meditation. When you get in meditation, when you get into the big mind when you get into the place where you see this awesome emptiness then you don't then you know that's liberation and you know that's where you're going Mm -hmm. but if you don't have um, any kind of a understanding I asked her if she would had some mystical experiences in the past in her life and she said yes, she had, and mostly they were when she had had, had some, you know, in the sixties when she was experimenting with drugs. And um, so I said, well, think about those, um, and what you saw, you know, what what you, how your mind opened, how you, pictured okay. there, and so that you can know that it's that they're the next. Step is liberation, and 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 not nothingness. You know, and not. Well, I think, as you said, the, the fear is, is, that you're, that you don't, you're not going to exist anymore. That you know, you you don't want to let go of your, of yourself. But the consciousness, I believe, the consciousness, or something. I don't know if that's a consciousness or what you'd call it. Some kind of an essence. Yes. Continues into yeah. the next now, and the next now, and the next now, and the never ending now.
0: Well. think we are and what we're afraid of losing doesn't even exist at all. Um, But its non-existence is not in the nature of uh, a, a total hallucination. It's not of the nature of hallucination. It's the nature of delusion. Uh, The self that we think we are definitely does not exist, but that doesn't mean that. That's not a total negation. It's difficult to understand what lies behind that. Because what lies behind that um, is just too big, it's too huge. It's like a drop of water. Within the ocean, not a drop of water outside the ocean falling into the ocean, but it's like a drop of water in the ocean. Well what constitutes a drop of water in the ocean? Only I mean only some imaginary line that we would create when we were examining the hypothetical ocean with our human mind and our human senses. You know, and we can say, okay, here's our ocean. Now, let's take a drop of water in the middle of the ocean. And let's make it this big. Okay, so we picture it as being that big. And that's the kind of self that we are. That we're like, that. our self is like the drop of water. Which doesn't really have any existence other than as an idea in our mind but what does exist is the ocean and the water and that's what we that's what we really are if we can use those words and say that without slipping into the idea that there's still somehow a separateness to that and. We cling to the separateness as well. We do. Even the idea of merging with the ocean when it means the loss of separateness can produce a discomfort in the mind. I'm still thinking of the problem. How, how do we help somebody who has a very limited amount of time? But on the positive side, is, if she practiced Zen for a long time, she must have learned something. And so maybe all she needs to do, maybe this is just a temporary setback. Maybe.
1: The maybe panic. t- panicky.
0: Yeah, the panic has caused her to forget. What she's already learned and what she already understands, and she just needs to be helped to understand that more clearly. But it, it's a it's an interesting question for all of us. So, yeah.
2: yes,
3: um, somewhat related. But um, this year there was a movie that came out called The Unmistaken Child, or yeah, The Unmistaken Child. Which was a uh, showed the process by which the Tibetan Buddhist monks mm-hmm. identify a reincarnated yes. um, Rinpoche or, or you know Lama of some kind, mm-hmm. and so it showed this whole process. It was the uh, the helper, the assistant of this monk, the monk who died, who was sent on the mission to find his reincarnation. And um, so there are many, many aspects to the way this happened. There were astrologers who predicted where the child would be found. Mm -hmm. And so then the monk had to go and examine. It had to be a certain, like, it had to be like a certain, I don't remember exactly, but like a family with only two children and it had to be the second child or something. Mm -hmm. And it had to be certain things. So he went, and he went here, and there, and everywhere. And then he, he discovered the child, and then they take the child back to to give him certain kinds of tests to see if he would identify the right mala that belonged to um, the, the Rinpoche who was being reincarnated, or the Lama who was being reincarnated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. OK, so it's this idea. And last summer, I learned that the, that some of the Tibetans, I don't know about all of them, believe that there is this thing <laughs> called the Alaya Vishnana, which is some kind of karmic, this is what I understand, it's it's a karmic, it's the karma that hasn't yet either come to fruition or that, that's what gets reincarnated. That, that's what I understood to happen. Because the Theravadins don't talk, talk much in those terms at all. They talk about rebirth, or they talk about birth in the cycle of dependent origination when, you know, you get born into a state of being, but Mm -hmm. it's always very much in this world, at least that's the way I understand it. Mm -hmm. I could be terribly wrong there. So I wonder, could you, because it's really hard to get out of the Western mind when you were trained in it for a long, long time.
0: Right, like since you were born. yeah. Yeah.
3: (laughs) <laughs> At least in this life, anyway. In <laughs> yeah, this life, anyway. Yeah. This life. So, would you uh, could you speak to what is it that gets reincarnated? How is it that the Tibetans have this whole really uh, amazing ritualized uh, discovery process? The Southeast Asians don't seem to too much the, the Zens. I don't think Zen people. I don't know what they believe about reincarnation, mm-hmm. but. Um, Yeah. Rebirth, and you were asking about that, uh, something about
2: that, similar, last night. Yeah, yeah. I'm Mm -hmm.
3: sort of knowledgeable in Tibetan Buddhism, in a, I
4: mean, in a, Mm -hmm. in an amateur, exposed way. I had to, (laughs) but, um, yeah. This is, yeah. Go ahead. You know, (laughs) I was thinking of the, another way that Mm -hmm. it's described, I mean, they, they have that, but also... Because I don't know the, the terma enough, I, I know the other, but is that it's also your attachment when you're not a lama or you have a conscious death and rebirth. It's your attachment that keeps coming back. Your desire keeps. I mean, that's what I've heard in Tibetan Buddhism. It's not like a soul. There is.
0: Well. <clears throat> how best to approach this. Could you start
3: with Hinduism and the idea of the soul and then how, what Buddhism, what happened with the Buddha? Yeah, Yeah, I I think that's a very good place to start is that, yeah, in the, in the,
0: what we call Hinduism today, but, you know, would more properly be called the Brahmanical tradition or or the Vedantic tradition. It was Brahmanical first, and later become became Vedantic. So. But before the Buddha was born, the common belief was that all people were reincarnated, that death and rebirth were that you had a soul or Atman, and that when you died, that soul or Atman came back again and acquired a a new body and a newly conceived child. and um, They also believed that the kind of family that you were born into and the kind of circumstances were dependent upon your karma and by karma uh, at the time of the Buddha by what most people understood karma to be, was how well you lived your life according to the rules and standards of your place in life. And there was a caste system. And for each uh, each level in the caste system, there were certain roles and responsibilities and things you did do and things you didn't do. And, of course, according to whether you were male or female and, and everything else, and uh, there were a a lot of rules or guidelines about how you were supposed to live your life. And depending, if if you lived as perfectly as you could according to the status that you were, then you, uh, this was the karma that would cause you to be reincarnated uh, in, uh, in the next life and Good circumstances, or bad circumstances, to the degree that you fail. And the highest caste were the Brahmins, and they had the greatest responsibility because part of their role in the society was to was to perform. Each Brahmin had to keep uh, three sacred fires going in his home, and had to perform all kinds of rituals and was often uh, commissioned to perform these rituals by members of the other castes who couldn't perform them. And so uh, the Brahmin had the responsibility for performing all these rituals properly, which the karmic outcome of that was that the realms of the gods would continue as they would, and the gods would continue to regulate life on earth and and the weather and the harvests and everything else as it was. So it was a fairly... Complete system, but right at the core of it was the belief in that everyone was reincarnated and everybody was reincarnated according to how well they lived their life. And karma means action, uh, literally, and of course in the Brahmanical tradition, it was the actions. It was, and there wasn't any ethical component to it. Uh, as such, except I, I that, of course, I mean, there's an ethical aspect of how you fulfill your responsibilities and your role in life. But it was really about, you know, the actions you from every day from the time you woke up till the time you went to sleep. If your actions were of a proper kind, that was good karma and, and led to reincarnation. And so, This was a common belief of society at the time the Buddha was born. Now, in addition to that, there was a new, uh, kind of more radical part of the Brahmanical tradition that had developed, who had recognized that being constantly reborn meant constantly re-dying. re rebirth means re-death. And so there came to be, uh, and the, the Hindu scriptures called Upanishads are really all about the development of this idea. That in fact, there was a way to escape from this cyclic rebirth that was called samsara, the, the wheel of, of birth and death. And that the escape from the wheel of birth and death could be achieved if you could discover your true self, your Atman, that part of you which was going to be reborn in life after life. And that that Atman was actually identical with Brahman, which was the creator and source of everything. Brahman was described as Sat-Chit-Ananda. and That means uh, being consciousness bliss is basically what Sat was, and so this was the, this is the essence of Brahma who is the source of everything, was was uh, being consciousness bliss, and that the Atman of an individual person was actually identical to that, and if you could discover your true self, and achieve union with Brahman. Then when you died, you would not be reborn, but rather uh, if, if you achieved this union in lifetime, then when you died, you would permanently achieve union with Brahma. So a lot, a huge amount of the Buddhist teachings, the Buddha was putting a whole new set of ideas into an old set of clothes. And he kept redefining these familiar ideas. He began each, if you look in the sutras, when he's talking to to the Brahmins or when he's talking to different groups, he always starts out accepting their ideas and terminology but then kind of turning them upside down in the course of the discourse that he gives. He did this with reincarnation. He changed it just this much to say not reincarnation but rebirth. And he overtly denied reincarnation, but in all of those discussions where people would be thinking in terms of reincarnation, he would substitute the idea of rebirth. And the same thing, people will say karma, and he was very clear, he'd say, well. When I say karma, I mean intention. And and this isn't an important. This wasn't just you know sort of a. Uh, a, a this wasn't just sort of uh, saying the same thing a little bit differently. He was saying something totally different, mm-hmm. because the people who he was speaking to, karma meant action, and it meant you know did you bow down when you were supposed to, and did you slice this the way you're supposed to and light that the way you're supposed to. I all meant the action. And he was saying, when I say karma, I mean intention. And he took it completely out of the realm of mechanical actions produce results in future rebirths to making it totally ethical and totally moral. He made karma into a moral issue. So that karma was not, the action you performed, but the intention that mm-hmm. lay behind the action. And then also, as you know, he, he uh, over and over again taught uh, that there was no Atman. Two, the sort of run-of-the-mill householder who was uh, who believed in the Brahmanical tradition, believed he had an Atman and was content to try to do his best to make sure that Atman was reincarnated in the best possible way. All of the other various bands of ascetics who were wandering around in the forest and from village to village and with alms bowls and things like that, were on a different path. They were trying to escape from the cycle of reincarnation and rebirth and to achieve uh, to achieve the union with Brahma and so he was taking these same ideas and and uh, where was I gonna go with that part of it there lost my track there a little bit Okay, so we see that he changed the meaning of rebirth, and he changed the meaning of karma. And, well, anyway, let's, let's go back to this. Of course, yes, he was teaching selflessness, no self. Okay, that was what I was getting to. All of these more spiritually sophisticated practitioners were concerned with discovering the true self, that they really were, that was identical with Brahman. And here he was teaching that there is no such thing. You're not going to find what you're looking for because it doesn't exist. Um, a good illustration of this um, I, I read this sutra a few weeks ago on Thursday night. I don't know if you were there, but it's. Uh, his two chief disciples for most of his life, Mahamogalana and sorry, Putra. they were friends and they had dedicated their lives to, uh, to, the, to the spiritual pursuit of the discovery of their true Atman. And at one point they separated and went in different directions, but they pledged to each other that if either one, this is called the deathless, was the terminology that they used. They were seeking the deathless, uh, which is another term that the Buddha took over. But by deathless what they meant is once you would achieved union with Brahma, you would not be reborn. and So that's what they meant by the deathless. So they pledged to each other that should either one of them ever uh, discover the deathless, that they would immediately come and tell the other. And this was very very soon after the Buddha's enlightenment, and uh, uh, his, the first the first people that he taught who achieved enlightenment were five fellow ascetics who uh, had practiced with him before his enlightenment. One of them encountered Sariputra. And Sariputra was, was a very sincere, dedicated seeker and asked of every... Of, of everyone he came across, you know, wanted to know the teaching they followed. And uh, I can't remember the name of this monk at the moment. It might come to me. But Sariputta, Sariputra saw him and realized that there was something very, very different. And he said to him that uh, you seem to be so clear and calm and, and so certain in your understanding. Please tell me who is your teacher, and what is his teaching? And he said to him uh, that I have not, my teacher is is the Buddha, and I've not been a follower of him for very long. So I really can't explain his teaching, but I can tell you this much. So he spoke to him, though, about the basics of, of impermanence. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but I, I remember exactly what Sariputra's reaction was. He he got it. He got it immediately, just like that. Ah, whatever arises due to causes and conditions must pass away. And you see, what he'd been doing is he had for years been putting all of his effort into searching for his true self in all kinds of practices, meditative and otherwise. And here he'd received this brief teaching which basically validated what he'd already discovered but didn't know that he had discovered, which was that there is no self, that everything that arises due to causes and conditions passes away. So immediately he went and found Maha Moggallana. Maha Moggallana says, whoa, you look really different. Tell me, is it true? <laughs> Did, you know, have, have you... Have you seen the Deathless? And sorry, Putra says, "Well, yes, I have." And so he te- he tells him the same thing, and he gets it right away too. So the two of them say, "Okay, we've got to go find this Buddha guy," <laughs> and they went to follow it up. And the second sermon that the Buddha is supposed to have taught, also the same first five uh, fellow ascetics of his. The first first sermon was called the the. Uh, uh, Turning of the wheel, and the second uh, sutra is called the uh, the, the teaching on, on selflessness. So very, and, and he taught them both to the same five groups of ascetics. You know, as a matter of fact, the sutras are not that long, but apparently this went on for about a week. And one of them, one or two of them, would go to town and gather food for for the other four. So they just kept talking pretty much around the clock. But, but we have these two teachings. Uh, the 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 turning of the wheel and and the uh, uh, and the sermon on selflessness that this is what we know about the Buddha's first teaching to these five and the second sermon was was on selflessness so right away since this was such a linchpin of the teaching of the Buddha long before he ever adapted the idea of reincarnation by speaking of rebirth that uh, we have to reconcile the ideas. And, of course, his monks did, too. So they said to the Buddha, they said, rebirth, rebirth, what is it, uh, blessed one, that is reborn if there is no self? And uh, he said, it is your karmic predispositions. It is that accumulated karmic tendencies. Buddha taught a very different kind of karma, too. Because um, later on in the Hindu tradition, you see, in the Brahmanical tradition, you would be reborn according to your actions in this life, which required that there would be some sort of supernormal power that kept track of such things and put you in the right place when the time came.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And this was carried on later and in the Brahmanical tradition which became Vedantic and Hindu, this came be very, very strongly developed the whole idea of you've heard of the Akashic record, so you know the Akashic record is where all of your karmic acts are recorded
2: mm-hmm.
0: and there is some some supremely supernatural process that that that. Uh, uh, pays out the results according to their past deeds. The Buddha, though, like everything else, he rearranged this, he spoke in terms of the five aggregates. And that the aggregate of mental formations is, what is this these are the tendencies that cause us to have the kind of perceptions that we have, react to them the way we do, that cause certain kinds of intentions to arise, which lead to our speech and and our deeds, wholesome or unwholesome. And every experience we have and everything that we ever do becomes a part of these mental formations, karmic formations. They they are called They're sankharas or formations, but they are kama sankharas. So they are karmic formations, and so. Of the five aggregates that you are, one part of the five aggregates is this complex, interwoven collection of experiences and inclinations that makes you be and behave and and react the way that you do. And this is what you have to change, you know, if you're going to become enlightened. So that. If you become, if you become angry or if you steal and lie, it's because that you have made yourself into the kind of person that does those actions. And so, to cease doing that, you have to make yourself into the kind of person who doesn't do those actions. Your unwholesome uh, mental states and thoughts, when they arise, need to be transcended and need to be replaced with wholesome mental states and thoughts. This is the intention that the Buddha meant by karma. And your karma makes you to be the kind of person you are. And so the experiences that you have, every experience you have is a result of your karma. And uh, the way that you tend to react to it is a result of your karma. But it's not fixed, you can change that. So, when asked, what is it that's reborn if there is no self? the Buddha said, it is only this. It is these karmic formations. So, what does this mean then? Well, it means that to the degree that we accumulate a lot of wholesome or unwholesome karmic formations when this body and this mind disappear that those karmic formations somehow continue to have an influence. Somebody else is going to inherit them so to speak Um, and when you were born uh, you have You had certain characteristics. Um, Biologists would explain them in terms of your genetics, and uh, psychologists would explain them in terms of the environmental circumstances that you were exposed to and the way they interacted with your genetics. But I think everybody agrees that, you know, well, there's some things about the way people are that, you know, it's really hard to account for. So, I suppose they would be accounted for as a kind of inheritance of uh, karmic propensities from beings that had lived before. But when we're thinking this way, we're still thinking in in a very... We're still thinking like these pre-Buddhist Brahmanical people to a large degree. And we're taking this group of karmic propensities and... We're thinking of of them as a new kind of substitute self, which uh, gets continued on. So somebody else born with all my karmic propensities, we we kind of smuggled the self back in there in (laughs) in that way. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not... That's not an altogether bad way of looking at things, but I like to make a comparison with the things that we do know and understand. Um, We do, we can understand that everything that we regard as being physical and material is completely interconnected, right? And in the last half of the last century, in the last half of the 20th century, incredible strides were made forward in science in understanding that very interconnectedness. To the extent that it's realized now that that subatomic particles on the opposite sides of the universe remain linked and interconnected. And so of course we can see in the world around us how everything is interconnected. But scientists are saying that the interconnection is even more than that when they said they say things like when a butterfly flaps its wings in Hong Kong it will cause a thunderstorm in London. And that's based on measurable scientific fact. And physicists are saying that uh, subatomic particles in every part of the universe are still interactively connected. So in a sense, we can say about materiality, well, yeah, everything's interconnected, everything causes everything, nothing's really separate. we look at our body and the parts of our body are constantly being exchanged with everything else and are influenced by everything else and in turn influence everything around us, and so... We don't have any trouble wrapping our minds around the idea that, well, yeah, this body is just like it's a temporary aggregate of this stuff that the whole universe is made of. And there's nothing really special about any part of it. It's just it happens right now temporarily to be gathered together in this way.
2: Mm
0: Is this an easy concept to grasp and rather agreeable to your own understanding of things (laughs) for everyone here if it is, let's just transfer it to the mental realm. Why should, in the realm of mind and consciousness, why should anything be any less interconnected? And if there is any truth to this non duality nonsense that all these sages are always babbling about, then that. Pretty well fits, doesn't it? I mean that. Forget the material. Let's just focus on the mental. I mean, even when we're talking about a friend dying, it's their mind that where the attachment is. But this mental stuff that we're so attached to, you know, if it is all one and all interconnected totally, then your Karmic propensities can't really be separated out, can they? I mean, they can be separated out in the same way that your body is temporarily. And even after you die, parts of your body can tend to stay together while other parts go elsewhere. Right? You die and a wolf comes along and eats your body, quite a bit of your body ends up being wolf body and staying together there. But not everything. Some of it goes other places as well. But it all continues. So karmic propensities can be reborn. And it makes sense that in the realm of the mental the Karmic propensities also tend to hold together to some degree or another. Not that they are a self, but rather they are causally related to each other. The karmic propensities in their totality at the time you die, accumulated over the course of a lifetime, causally connected to each other, and so there are connections between them. And so, you know, like a drop of ink. And a glass of water. It tends to stay together for quite a while. It just gradually spreads out and diffuses. So as new beings come into existence, and they're really only a part of this wholeness. They're they're not a separate part of it. And so the idea that they can be affected in such a way that that they inherit sort of like we inherit genes from our parents that we can inherit karmic propensities from beings that preceded us isn't too absurd an idea maybe a little bit on the metaphorical side but that's all right we have to understand things on the metaphorical side um What it means is that every time a person makes a lot of good karma, they increase the total amount of good karma of the universe. And if some of that happens to hold together closely enough, it might actually create a path that that leads to that karma achieving a kind of Buddhahood too. The this idea of reincarnations in uh, Tibet was invented a few centuries ago. Um, it is uniquely Tibetan. the 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 tulku system in Tibet is very unique in the world, and not only in Buddhism but in the world. and It came at a time when, in Tibet, there were large monasteries, which would be uh, directed by some great lama, and lamas were celibate and had no children, and so there were problems of continuity and succession. And the solution was to use whatever supernatural powers that anybody could muster up to try to find a being who had the suitable karmic propensities to take the place of the one who had passed away. And so we don't need to mistake the idea that uh, the Dalai Lama that lives today is the same person as the Dalai Lama that that preceded him. And, And he doesn't think that. He looks at the series of Dalai Lamas and he says there's certain ones he has more in common with and some he can't relate to at all. <laughs> but I think the task in the Tibet system and at the time in, in medieval Tibet was not was a pretty good idea was that the that the most Highly developed lamas would go out and try to locate a young child who would be, the with the proper training, would be the most suitable successor to the Lama who had passed away. And so they developed all kinds of means of, of doing this. But that doesn't mean that you have to accept the uh, the notion of reincarnation, which is not a Buddhist idea. Now what is very interesting is most Tibetan, average Tibetans probably totally believe in reincarnation to the same degree that Indians do. But most sophisticated virtuoso lamas, like the Dalai Lama, know better. And you find the same thing throughout the Buddhist world. That in Southeast Asia, people give to the temples and they support the monasteries and things like this. So that they will be, quote, reborn in good circumstances. What they really mean is reincarnation. And they don't really understand the idea of rebirth. And so, throughout the Buddhist world, there is what is called village Buddhism or common Buddhism, which includes a lot of ideas that are very comforting and easily understood. And then there's the more sophisticated, virtuoso Buddhism, which is those very same ideas in a more refined and purified understanding, which is really what you keep finding when you read the sutras over and over again. The Buddha said, when I say karma, I mean intention. And uh, The Buddha said uh, that, that uh, I, I speak of rebirth, not of uh, uh, reincarnation all these different kinds of
2: things. Yeah?
4: So the difference between those two would be reincarnation is the idea of a self being reborn, so to speak, in another yeah. body. Continuing. That's some yeah. kind in a new lifetime. Versus rebirth is the idea of that karmic tendency That's right. finding its way to another that those, being.
0: Those karmic tendencies. Really, the idea of rebirth is that as in the physical world, if you commit an action, it has all kinds of reverberations until the end of time you know um, is that obvious that if you commit an action a physical action that it has all kinds of I mean, you commit a, a large action and that's that and, and that's obvious you know you' Um, crash a jet plane into World Trade Tower, and the reverberations affect everybody on the planet, and they will for centuries to come. For I don't know how long to come, but ultimately forever. And because the future history, long after mankind no longer exists, whatever condition the universe is in, the future will be affected by that. And likewise, the same thing, you know, with you. If you uh, if you tell somebody a lie next week, you may not know the effects of that, but it, it, it will continue to reverberate in one form or another. Nothing will ever be the same as it would have been if you hadn't done that. So everything reverberates. And so in this regard, within within the stuff of, of, uh, of ultimate reality, All of our intentional actions continue to reverberate and that's what's reborn. What the Buddha said is that what you think of as a self, or what you would call a soul, uh, something that is permanent and abiding, is unitary, and is continuous, that these are the qualities of an Atman that you don't have. and and If you know what they are, you can look for them and find that they don't exist. they are, uh, an, an Atman is persistent rather than, rather than uh, constantly changing and in flux. An Atman is separate and independent from other things. And an Atman is one. We only have one soul or one self. It's unitary. So it's, uh, to use simplified terms, permanent. it's permanent, uh, it's permanent uh, uniform, and separate, distinct. And the other two properties that it accounts for is the Atman is the experiencer. The Atman is the seer, the hearer, the feeler, the thinker. And the second thing, is the Atman, is the doer, the intender. Okay, And so these, if you search for the Atman, if you search for the experiencer and the doer, you won't find them. If you search for that which is is permanent, distinct and separate and unitary, you won't find it. But if you examine the five aggregates, the five aggregates will account for Experiencing, and they will account for doing and intending, and they will account for any illusion of permanence, and and oneness, and uh, separateness. But you find that there there is no Atman that has these particular qualities and characteristics. So that's what's not that's what's not reincarnated but all of the actions everything you do reverberates through the world but likewise on the psychic level all of your intentions reverberate as well endlessly and as a psychophysical entity in this life you are a distinct mass of intentions and that is that is a karmic propensity that that and it didn't come from nothing at the time you came into the world as, you know, a, a complete vacuity which you filled, but it it was an outcome of what was already present. And when you pass, mm. it will continue in the same way.
4: Mm. Yeah. It's, it's easier for me to, to, to get the part of not permanent, not unchanging, not Singular, et cetera, et cetera. That's that's much easier for me to get than the part of Tix, there's t- no doer, there's right, no experiencer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that part I I just can't get. <laughs> well, that's that's, that's, what the really medi- hard. that's what the
0: meditation practice yeah. is about. That's what insight allows you to do. Mm-hmm. Insight allows you to have the experience of, you know, as in, in the Buddha's own words, in the seeing there, in the seeing there is only the seeing. There is no seer. In the thinking there is no thinker. And and if you practice meditation insight, you have those experiences. You see that that's not there. If you practice mindfulness, mindful awareness, you see the intentions and inclinations to, to thought and action arising out of your past conditioning, and that there is no self that is Creating those, that they are, they are, karmically car, karma in the sense that the Buddha used it. They are karmically produced results. What you what happens in the present moment is going to determine what happens in the future, and the present moment is that crucial point at which the direction can change. But um, you have to practice mindfulness to see that the, the the self is a creation of the mind, and an intention, uh, an emotion will arise, and uh, well, you know, it happens, an event will take place. As a result of that vent event, there will be a perception and emotion, and based on past experience, there will ar- arise an intention to speak or act uh, as. Determined by these past influences, the self is really a another pro, a separate projection of the mind. That when it comes into being, appropriates that intention as being its own. That oh, I decided that I'm going to do this. I feel this way. It appropriates the whole experience. Uh, this happened to me. You know, I I, I saw that. I felt this way. I decided to do this. But that is nothing more than the story that our mind is telling. Mm -hmm. Our mind tells a story and the center of narrative gravity Mm -hmm. is the self. Mm -hmm. But the self doesn't exist as any kind of substantial thing. And the important part about what you're saying is that the intention didn't come from some it came from, from cumulative. It, it, it came from a kind of algebra of past experience.
4: So when you're, so when so when we're meditating, and we're in this in a place of some degree of quietness. Yes. And then sort of a bubble appears. Okay. In consciousness, which has some thought or feeling or a picture or whatever happens to sound, whatever happens to be, then um, that's a manifestation of what you're describing. That's right. As opposed to your mind or your brain or yourself or some other mm-hmm. word like that, you know, making this thing happen.
0: That's right. So you have this experience in meditation, you're sitting there, and a thought appears. And, and really, honestly and truly in the experience, it's, there's just the observation that it appears. Mm. But if you speak to somebody afterwards, you say,
4: well, I had this thought. Right, and it becomes, I had this yeah, thought. Too. I had this thought. Mm.
0: But that's added in afterwards. Mm. And this is the insight, is, is, is seeing that. Mm. And likewise, uh, in the actions. If you practice mindfulness, uh, you'll you'll see that as you approach the door, your hand goes out to re- to take the doorknob, and you would tell yourself the story that, well, I decided to reach out and take the doorknob, but you didn't really, you know, you you just decided to take credit for, the, yourself, which just came into being, and yourself just comes in and out of being, you know, it's a, it's just another mental formation, it's just another mental construct. And it comes in and out of being, and it's it's always different. It's never the same.
1: So you say there's no observer.
0: That's right. What there is, and it gets more there there is no observer. What the, what there is, so is we can distinguish. Sitting, you practice meditation, and what you realize is that there is conscious awareness, and some things are bathed in the light of conscious awareness, and some things are not. Some things are strongly illuminated by conscious awareness and some are only weakly illuminated and some not at all. And you realize that the mind is doing the same thing with experience. It's appropriating the illumination by conscious awareness as being an observing self. But phenomena occur. And mind is a phenomenon. And mind selectively notices some things and doesn't notice others and what it notices it interprets and gives rise to a perception and so this process unfolds in the light of conscious awareness and that's what we want to see when we practice mindfulness and uh, and, in meditation is that aha this is what's happening there isn't there isn't an eye that's having these experiences. In the seeing, there's only the seeing. And the, you're sitting and meditating, and there's a sound. And that sound is illuminated by conscious awareness. Some part of your mind brings up the level, the label, bird, and attaches it to that sound. And now, now that label is illuminated by conscious awareness. And some other part of your mind that is not conscious and that is just as much a mechanical, physical process as the water flowing downstream in a river uh, generates the feeling that, oh, the feeling of delightfulness, that you like the sounds of birds singing. And that too then is exposed to the light of conscious awareness. But we make this into the story of oh, I was sitting and meditating and I heard this beautiful bird, it made me so happy. <laughs> and so that's that's what you want to come to understand firsthand. When you when you understand it then you can start to see it more and more in all those circumstances where ordinarily you wouldn't you don't need to always be you don't need to always have the tremendous clarity and stability that you do in meditation to see it and then then you can come more and more to that place of simply knowing that these five aggregates are empty of the self and of course the same thing is true of the way that we, the world that we experience, it too is empty of any kind of self-nature of being the way it appears to us to be. Because what appears to us is only our mind's fabrication around it, our mind's interpretation of it. And so... uh, I can keep going all the time. Where does
1: intuition fit
0: into this? Intuition is is the understanding that comes from a a deeper level of our mind than uh, the level where rational uh, analysis and verbal constructions take place. So a simple example is that at an intellectual level, you know that the Earth is round and that the Earth rotates on its axis, and that's why we have sunrise and sunset. At an intuitive level, unless you're an airline pilot or an astronaut or an astronomer who spent a lot of time thinking and studying and seeing things in a different way, the average person, although they intellectually know the earth is round, and that the earth goes around the sun, and the earth turns on its axis. Intuitively, they live in a flat world where the sun rises there and sets there. The sun moves across the sky. Intuitively is that understanding that comes from a deeper, nonverbal, non-analytical level. And we can speak of intuition. Some people are very fascinated and fond of intuition because they often find that the deeper layers of their mind uh, can tune into much subtler things and you know so we we say that well I didn't I don't know why but I just it didn't seem right to me and I trusted my intuition some deeper part of your mind not the not the verbal analytical part was able to identify things if the intuition was true, was labeled to identify things that that this higher analytical, more superficial level missed. Body language is something like this. Body language is something that tends to be invisible to the uh, rational analytical mind. We just simply filter it out and overlook it. But there's a deeper level of our mind that tunes into it all the time. And we sense when somebody is having a reaction, or if somebody feels a particular way, or you know, we read body language. And from, from that, we speak of that as, as intuition. But the other sense, uh, the same thing that we're talking about, though, as intuition, also constitutes our intuitive worldview. And the problem with our intuitive worldview is that I am a thing in a world of things that are separate from me. And those things can either make me happy or make me unhappy. That is our intuitive world view, and that's mistaken. When you come to a point of having an intuitive world view that all of this is empty, it's a projection of my mind based on my karma, and that the self is empty, and this mind that's doing the projecting is is empty, empty of any self nature of being the way. It appears to me to be. When you have that intuitive view, then you have a totally different kind
1: of experience. Well, is the mind the same as the conscious awareness then?
0: Conscious awareness is. They're not the same thing because you have. There's a whole lot to your mind that's never conscious. Most of your mind.
1: But the way you're. Describe it. It seems like the mind is is a self-existent thing. It has all of these characteristics. It has all of these, <coughs> all of these uh, underground currents and mm-hmm. and all these things that it is. It's so. Is that? It it, it, it sounds well, the way when you talk about it that it's that it is a self-existent that's, thing.
0: Well, it's the same thing. When we talk about the world, we talk about it as if it's a self, self-existent thing. So, you know, if I wanted to give you instructions on, on how to make a pie or how to, how to find a particular house in Tucson or anything like that, I'm going to speak uh, as though these are all self-existent things. And they are self-existent to the extent that my private universe and your private universe are sufficient in such ways that you'll be able to find your way to that house in Tucson and you'll be able to make a pie. Now, your experience of that pie after you've made it might be totally different than mine. <laughs> you know. But but our minds are so I can talk to you about the way your mind works in these terms, as though it's self existent. But the fact is your mind too, that's only a way that it appears in consciousness. Consciousness is not the same thing as the mind and this we should we should have two weeks to talk about this you know. uh, and
2: people come
0: and go and look after our needs while we do so
2: <laughs> <laughs> if you talk really, really there's two
0: there, there are two two things to which two very different But at the same time, uh, the same things to which the term consciousness applies. The consciousness that we ordinarily experience is always consciousness of. And we can't even imagine consciousness without this duality of subject and object. Because this this is what our mind does. But the duality is something, is an illusion that is imposed on a non-dual reality. And the, the illusion consists of consciousness and object of consciousness. The object of consciousness is an appearance. In in the underlying reality, there is only the consciousness pure consciousness. The consciousness that you see the consciousness that illuminates your mental projections is identical to the consciousness that illuminates my mental projections. There is not Allegra's consciousness. Into the Dasa's consciousness, that—that that is the illusion. There's, there's just only this pure consciousness, but the mind is one appearance amongst many, and so when we—that's the other thing—when we're meditating, you can come to very still places where you just see the mind separate from the things that are arising and passing away in the mind. The mind becomes very still, very, you know, just totally calm, totally placid. Then you see one sensation after another arises and passes away, one thought after another arises and passes away. And if you observe this long enough, you start to become aware that these things are arising and passing away in the mind. And so you shift your attention, sort of a foreground background shift. You ignore the appearances, or maybe you make your mind so calm that that they almost disappear, that there's hardly ever a thought or a sensation. And then you find yourself looking at the mind, and what you discover then is that the mind, too, is just another appearance. And so all of these things that we say about the mind, which are really convenient and useful to talk about, but they, too, are just conceptualizations Made out of nothing, about something that is, is empty in itself. But you know we have to get there by stages. We have to start where we are. We started out thinking we're one thing in a world of things, and at the mercy of all these other things because they're either going to hurt us or make us feel good. And so we move gradually, step by step, clearer understanding. So then, one, one important stage along the way is seeing that the appearances that we experience as real are actually empty, but the nature of the appearances is causally determined by our past karma. So we see that those appearances are of the nature of causality.
2: Right?
0: And we've made a huge step forward that. And then we can turn that back on the self, and the self that I feel like I am. It too is an appearance and it too is causally determined. If we're still attached to the self and we have the thought that everything that arises from causes and conditions must pass away, we will be filled with terror, we will be miserable, look around at this and, and we'll feel trapped and we'll be disgusted with the world and disgusted with our life and, and it will be very, a very uncomfortable experience but then at some point if we continue to confront this we'll stop resisting it and we'll let go of our attachment and that will allow us to awaken and that's what that's what your friend needs to do who is who is, is dying because she's being confronted by the truth that everything that rises due to causes and conditions passes away, nothing less. And yes, it's a cause of fear and, and terror and misery and confusion. Isn't there any way out of this? Is, is and you know that there's not. And what I'm describing to you in the progress of insight is the knowledge of, of, of uh, knowledge of fear, knowledge of misery knowledge of disgust uh, knowledge of recollection knowledge of determination and then comes the knowledge of equanimity towards formations and so it's a it is an insight process and that's also the process that your friend needs to go through but it doesn't we don't need to experience all of these things if we can. If we can come to a place of sufficient equanimity through our meditation, meditative equino, equipoise, where we have a, a mind that's joyful, tranquil, and equanimous because of the training, then instead of we we, we don't we don 't need to react with fear, misery, and disgust because we don't our, because of our equanimity and tranquillity we don 't have the attachment and so we can we 're much more much more easily we can greet this reality uh, with an open heart and be willing to jump off the cliff and see if we can fly or not.
1: <laughs> was, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Once you learn to fly, mm-hmm. then life is a great adventure, and death is a great adventure, and there's no problems. So, so I've talked about a lot of things. Did I answer your question? Yeah. <laughs>
4: Was that string that you said, knowledge of this, knowledge of this, knowledge of this, knowledge of this. Could you just say that sentence one more time?
0: So which was that? then? Mm? There was
4: a sentence a few sentences ago <laughs> where you said knowledge of, knowledge of, knowledge of, and then you ended up with equanimity. Could you say that sentence again with all the knowledges?
0: Oh, the the knowledges, yes. Yeah. Uh, the just knowledge,
4: repeat exactly what you said. Knowledge, there's the,
0: the knowledge of fear,
2: uh-huh.
0: the knowledge of misery when you... Start to realize that there's uh, that that to cling to anything is only to cause yourself suffering.
2: Mm-hmm. Knowledge
0: of disgust. Mm-hmm. Then there is a knowledge of of recollection, and then that brings you, that calms you down enough for the knowledge of determination. And so, the knowledge of determination is where you realize that the only way out. This, this is where you really have to take refuge in the Buddha. It's like Oh no! There's got to be something more than this. This is terrible. <laughs> so then you take refuge in the Buddha and say, "Okay, I'll keep practicing and get there." So and that, and then from that comes the knowledge of equanimity towards formations. Okay, these are called uh, stages in the progress of insight. There's several different versions of them, but there's a uh, very old text called the Visuddhimagga, which lays them out in detail. Very hard reading. And then Mahasi Sayadaw has a little booklet it's also available on the internet if you look it up where he describes the the, uh, stages of the progress of insight. But these stages only need to be experienced in dry insight where there is no where you don't have the joy and the tranquility and equanimity. If you have those, you don't bother with these <laughs> misery, uh, fear, misery, disgust, recollection, determination. Okay,
4: what's rec- recollection referred to?
0: Well, it means you you look back over what you've just been going through. Oh, okay. Right. It actually happens at a point of emotional exhaustion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the yogi reaches a point of emotional exhaustion. You know, from struggling in in their mind resisting in their mm-hmm. mind against what they've seen, mm-hmm. and then in this, with this emotional exhaustion, then comes the recollection
2: mm-hmm.
0: and the review and the conclusion that well can't get any worse than this. <laughs>
2: I might as well go back to practicing. <laughs>